This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Over there, it was either kill or be killed. I said, fuck you, I'm coming home. After a while, I said, I'm coming home. I ain't dying over this fucking place. I've seen too many guys die over there. Day one, they teach you kill. Uh, but you really don't realize what it is until you really get into a combat situation. When we helped out for Charlie Company, no big deal because it was sniper work, you know what I'm saying? But then when I also found the kid on the hammock, that's when it really hit me. Either you kill or you're going to be killed over here. There's no fucking way I'm dying over here. War is brutal. You don't need me to tell you that. There's countless books and films about the tragedy and despair that it brings to millions and millions of people. Let's face it. It sucks. There's nothing good about it. There are twisted ideologies. Politicians argue about nothing. Military leaders make selfish decisions. But for those who are on the front line of the conflict, it's kill or be killed. If you're listening to The Enforcer for the first time, I'd suggest going back to the beginning of episode one to understand how we got here. For the rest of you who continue with the story, this is a warning about the graphic nature of this episode and the content that it entails. This episode is not suitable for children. I repeat, this episode is not suitable for children. Anyway, Anthony's squad is now making their way to Cambodia under the instructions of Mr. C. In Phnom Penh, we had to go in. There were supposedly strongholds over there. So I had to go through the jungle. So I had a scout. Scout was a Vietnamese kid. He would go ahead of us and tell us if he'd seen a, another unit or a platoon or brigade or whatever it was. He came back and told me that there was a camp about a half a mile up from where we were. There were three Viet Cong soldiers there. I said, all right. I said, so I took him. So I got my order. Go do what you got to do. Kill him. Come back. So I'm watching them, and I'm in the bushes somewhere. And when you're like that, if you got to pee or you got to shit, you do it in your pants. You can't be standing up to go do anything like that. So I'm watching them, and I seen three of them. I seen, now it's starting to get like nighttime. I see one guy sleeping, one guy sitting by a little fire cooking or whatever. Another guy's patrolling, he's walking around. It's okay. So I had the, I had the uh, 308 with me put a silencer on it and I'm looking I say this guy's sleeping he's by the fire if I can kill him then this guy I can take him out then I just gotta find the guy who's walking around I see the guys at the you know whatever he was cooking or making and the other guy the guy was snoring so I knew he was sleeping so this guy wasn't gonna hear a fucking thing looked at the guy got a beat on him on the scope he was coming up I caught him right in the chest he just went right back boom gone Stopped, looked around. This guy's still snoring. This other guy, who the fuck knows where he was? The guy who was snoring, I let him, he was snoring, and he had his back towards me, you know, through the back. So I got a beat on him. I was going to catch him, like, in the back of the head. He starts to turn over. I was going to shoot him in the front. I don't give a fuck. He, and I'm looking at him like this through the scope. I could see everything on him. 
and I got it aimed at his head. He turns over and he just went like this, opened up his eyes quick. As soon as I see, I said, this fucking new, I just let the round guard caught him right in the head. Gone. Now I got to find the other guy. Remember Camp Lejeune and all that training Anthony received from Captain Bass? Well, this is when it really comes to the fore. So, as Anthony's scouting around for the third Viet Cong soldier, he took off his boots. It's a small thing, but it's crucial. If you're trying to remain silent in the shadows, the last thing you need is the sound of a stick breaking beneath your heavy boots. Now, in his thick socks, Anthony was almost fully stealth, primed and ready. I got them off and I'm walking through and I spot him. I'm behind him. That's okay. I got this guy and this guy's walking around and he's, you know, like this, walking around like it was nothing. So I'm coming up behind and he stops and I'm looking at him. He puts his rifle up against the tree. He's leaning up against the tree. I said, you gotta be fucking kidding me. This guy's a perfect fucking target. So he puts up it and I see he takes out a cigarette. And he lights it. And he's leaning against the tree like this, smoking a cigarette. I said, is this guy fucking for real? He went up against the tree, so I said, you know what? I'm not gonna waste a bullet. I'm, now I'm like creeping up on him. I had the gun, I had my sidearm out. I said, you know, if he turns around, I'll shoot him. But if I can get close enough to him, I got right up behind this guy. Right, I was on the side of the tree. I came around from the side of the tree. This guy didn't even realize what happened. So I put the wire, put the wire around his neck, and I just pulled. His fucking head came off. I got scared. And when I pulled it so fucking hard, I cut through everything, including the bone. When his head came off, I fucking jumped back. I didn't know what the fuck happened. Then I see his head was on the floor. I go back to my camp. I'm covered in fucking blood because I snapped this guy's whole fucking head. They thinking I got hurt. I says, no. So, so Captain Bass goes, he goes, what the fuck happened? As I put the wire around his neck, yes, I pulled it, and this fucking guy's head came off. He goes, that's his blood, not yours. He says, yeah, he goes, well, take it off. He says, change. He says, we thought you got it. No, I didn't get hurt. This motherfucker, I never saw a fucking head come off like that before. He goes, you know what he tells me? You pull too hard. You should have just pulled enough to cut through his, uh, you know, cut through the vocal cords, the arteries. But I said I pulled hard enough that it was sliced right through the bone. He goes, this wire was a type of wire. Like I said, you know, they remember like they used to talk about piano wire and stuff. This is a type of wire. You pull it hard enough quick, you cut right through bone with this. <sighs> the first time I heard this audio, I felt a little bit sick. It's like something out of a Tarantino movie. Safe to say, Anthony's body count was growing, and the platoon was on their way to conduct more dangerous missions. I had just killed a guy about an hour before. What do I see come running up? I see Mr. C. He looks at me, he goes, how you doing? I says, no, not bad. He goes, pass me on the goes, that's what I like to see, high body count. That's number 16 you got in five days. I said, fuck you, he goes, I'm keeping count. He says, because you don't see me, doesn't mean I ain't keeping count. This guy kept count. He wanted, he loved it, man. He loved me and being me. Then we took some prisoners. We went into the jungle with the prisoners. And he says, come here. I said, right. He goes, I want you to handle this. What do you want me to do? Take them, make them talk. The instructions were clear. Make them talk. Whatever means necessary. And I mean, whatever means necessary. After some back and forth between Anthony and the translator, it became clear the prisoners weren't receptive to their threats. They weren't going to get the information they were after. So strap yourself in, because the torture is about to begin. 
I pushed him up against the tree, face first into the tree. I brought the rope around. I said, tell him. He moves, I'll kill him, and then I'll kill everybody over here. He told him this guy didn't move. I tied his other hand up. I told him, get me the straight razor and get me the torch. He brought me a hand settling torch like this with a straight razor. I asked him questions again. He didn't answer me. I said, ask the guys over here. They didn't answer him. No problem. I heated it up. I start to skin him alive. The only way I can describe the rest of the torture, think about how you peel a potato. Yeah. After a fellow Viet Cong watched his comrade get tortured in the most gruesome way possible, then he spoke, and spoke quickly. This guy told me his mother's birthday, his birthday, he told me where the enemy were, told us everything. This guy did not want to fucking die, especially the way I was going to do with him. Bombs about to drop everywhere. Anthony was on a killing spree. But as war would have it, you don't get off lightly. Eventually, the chickens came home to roost. I just came back from a mission. I had to go. I went into Cambodia, and I had to come from Cambodia back into Vietnam. And for whatever the reason was, I was gone about two weeks. I was on the mission, and I decided I didn't feel like sleeping in the tent or in the barrack that we made. I wanted to sleep outside, you know. I was sleeping. I stripped down, but I always kept my sidearm, my bayonet, and I kept the rifle near me. I lay down, and I don't know what time it was. I don't remember it was during the night. I woke up with a sharp pain right in the air. Oh. I shot I me, mean, I sharp fucking pain. I opened my eyes, my scout was sitting over me and he stuck me with a fucking knife in here, bayonet. He pulled it out and he started sticking it in the second time. When he stuck it in the second time, I felt like everything was running out of me. I felt like I was going to shot. I started, I hit him, I started wrestling with him. I managed to get my gun out. And I put it up to his head and I just blew his fucking head off. And I started yelling. They breached our, uh, they breached our security. By the way, there was just this one kid. I got one mark here, and I got one over here. From when he stared one to the other. Lucky, they said it didn't go into my lung because I was a big guy that I was muscular because I used to do a lot of weightlifting and stuff. That's what stopped the thing from going in. But they had to go in and check the wound. They bring me to the uh, the medic tent. I says, "All right, doc, you know, give me. I'm bleeding." He says, "I said, we're going to give me something to numb the pain." He goes, "Uh, uh-uh. uh." Well, come on. He goes, no. He says, well, we need it for guys that, you know, they're taking limbs off. It's okay. They said, what do we do? Jonesy comes over with a fucking belt, folded in half, and he folds it again. He goes, open your mouth. Open your mouth. He puts it in. The fuck? He goes, bite on this. So he goes, Anthony, he goes, my friend, listen to what I'm telling you. Bite down on this. Now I'm saying, what the fuck? I says, what? The medic says, we got to go inside and clean it out. I says, yeah. He goes, we got to go in both of them and clean them out. And I'm saying, okay, how bad could it hurt? Yeah, fucking right. I flew off the fucking table the first time he stuck the swab in there. I came right off the fucking table. They had to grab me. They put the belt back in my mouth. I had two guys, one on each side of me like this, my head holding the belt down. I had guys holding me on the legs, the shoulder all over. This guy went in and he had to clean it all out. Let me tell you, pain, I want... I said dying would have been better with the fucker than the pain. Then they says they were able to stitch me up, but he didn't have that much of the O2 silk that they were using. So he stitched me a little here and a little there. Okay, but now what we'll do with this here? Because relax, he goes, I'm going to cauterize it. Okay. He put the fucking powder on me. I said, oh, Doc, it's burning. He goes, no, that's not burning. And he fucking ignited. The fucking thing went off. I went flying off the table again. He says, that's burning. Hey, you motherfucker. But he had a cauterizer. That's how he did it. And it closed up the wound. 
And they sent me, uh, that's when I went back. I came back to New York. Righto. So we've had our fair share of blood and guts. Now, Anthony gets flown back to New York to recover from his knife wound. Most people would say this is an opportunity to relax. Get some downtime in. (laughs) Not Mr. Raimondi. He had other ideas. After a brief stint in the hospital, he heads back out to the Straits. So I got back to the United States and I was in touch with my friend of mine, Dominic Grayon. Dominic Grayon, years ago, he was the um, he was a district attorney. He had a spot in Greenpoint. It was on Stag Street and Union Avenue. Downstairs it was run by Julio Hernandez. It was the Democratic Voters Club. And upstairs, it was a big club. Beautiful place. Had a balcony and everything in it. And Dominic's partner in there was a guy named Charles, who was the nephew to Shirley Chisholm. Anyway, when I came home on leave, he told me there was a little problem with Charles. I said, what's the matter? He says, we're buying him out. He wants 25000 to buy him out. He's going to buy some houses. He's been giving us a problem. You know, and his aunt is Shirley Chisholm. I don't give a fuck who his aunt is. All right. What happened was Charles came to the club that day. He says, fuck you guys. I'm calling my aunt. I'm not selling out. I'm not doing nothing. So I looked at him and I said, this guy made the wrong fucking mistake. So Dominic looked at me and he went, I just went like this to Dominic my hand. Don't even worry about it. I says, give me, I says, where's Charles live? He told me where Charles lived. And I'm looking, I was staking out Charles the next day. I seen him getting into this big ass Cadillac and he drove to uh, St. Mark's Place, downtown Brooklyn. And he parked the car between 6th and 7th Avenue. And his girlfriend had one of the big houses over there and he used to go into the girlfriend's house. And I timed him and he came out about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 in the morning. I watched him the next night, he went there the next night. He went into the house and I saw I started going to work. If you remember years ago, cars had alarms where you put a key in and you turned it to turn the alarm on and off. And the alarm piece was on the outside of the fender. It was called the Chapman key. It was a round key. So I says, this is perfect. I went underneath the car and I cut the wires to the alarm. Then I cut the wires to the dome light that goes on in the car. I cut the wires to the lock. I cut the wires on every fucking thing in the car. I opened the car and he had a Cadillac Coupe de Ville. I got in the back and I put the seat back. Now I'm dressed all in black and I'm just waiting. I'm just hanging out. Now I'm looking up every now and then I see he comes out. Walks over to the car, puts the key in, turns it like to turn the alarm off. Fucking alarm's already off. Opens up the door, gets in the car. Hits the button for the electric door locks. All right, I left that going. Push the key in the ignition, turns it, you hear click, 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 the car won't start because I cut all the wires. Start yelling and cursing and banging the steering wheel. This motherfucking car. I should throw it in the fucking ocean. I paid a lot of money for it. He's going back and forth like this in the seat. So when he went back the last time, I took my left hand, I came around, I put it around his mouth like this, and I put a nine-inch blade right here in the back behind his fucking ear. I told him, you make one move, I'll put nine inches of steel through your fucking brain. The guy was like, I think he turned fucking white. I said, listen to me, I'll kill you right here, you motherfucking no by and all. I said, here's what you're going to do. I says, tomorrow, you're going to go down to the club. You're going to take the 25000 You're going to keep your fucking mouth shut. And you're going to walk out, go buy those five houses you were telling them about, and live your life and grow to be an old man. Because if you don't, I said, I'll kill you right here. I said, you understand? I said, if, I'm going to take my hand off your mouth. If you make one sound, that's going to be the last you make. They didn't say nothing. Listen to me carefully. I'm going to get out of the car. I'm going to take off. 
count from one to a hundred. Then let yourself out of the car. I said, if I see you before that, and I turn around and see you coming out before that, I'll kill you right where you fucking sit. Wherever you stay, I'll kill you right then and there. I got out on the passenger side. Now, you never saw my face because I had the, the mask on. Business with the family never stops. Anthony disappears into the night, with Charles unaware of his late night assailant. Morning comes, and the group regather at the club. Dominic and everybody's there, the commissioner, the uh, Carmine Lesapio, they're all there. Charles comes walking in, I'm sitting there. He don't know me. He starts yelling at Dominic. Ah, fuck you guys, and papa, 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 I'm going to go to my Aunt Shirley Chisholm. Fuck you and the money. I ain't taking the money. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. Dad, cash for him. So I said to myself, that this cocksucker, I got to kill this. I said, no, I'm not going to kill him yet. Let me see what happens. I go to get up, and I start walking towards him. Dominic grabs me by my left hand. I just got his hand. I pulled it off. I pulled his hand off my left hand. He looked at me like that. I'm walking over to Charles, and he's getting up. I got my hand on his shoulder. I sat up, pushed him right down this chair. And he looks up at me. I bent over. I told him in his ear. He says, remember what I told you last night in the car? I'll put nine inches of steel in your fucking head. Take the money, sign the papers, and get the fuck out of here. Charlie flees the club cursing and threatening Anthony and co with an ace up his sleeve. High-profile congresswoman, Shirley Chisholm. Next day, Shirley Chisholm comes down. Oh, my nephew, who's bothering my nephew? But being behind my nephew, you guys think what the fuck you are. I'm Shirley Chisholm. I'm a congresswoman. So I said, Shirley, can I speak to you? Oh, who are you? My name is Anthony. I'm a partner on the club. I'm home on leave right now from Nam. She was, yeah, what can I do? I said, listen, Shirley, let's talk. That you're a businesswoman, right? And you're a congressman. Yeah, here's what we do. Everything we do up here in the club, I'll give you 15% on everything. You protect the club, you get 15% along the board. Liquor, broads, swag, gambling, everything that comes in and out of this joint. And she looked at me. I said, I'm telling you seriously, you get, I'll give you 15%. I said, I got to go back to Namsu, but you get 15%. She turns around, she goes, you're the craziest white boy I ever fucking met. She goes, I'll think about it. I'll see you tomorrow. I says, all right. She leaves. And I'm talking with Dominic. I said, I think she's going to go. He goes, Auntie, be careful with her. She ain't wearing no. I said, oh, that's stupid Dominic. I know she could be wearing a fucking wire. She comes back the next day. And she goes, I'll take your deal. I got 15% of everything. Just to be blunt, Shirley didn't take shit from anyone. She was one tough cookie. But she took the deal. After Anthony checked she wasn't wearing a wire, the club was now in safe hands and everyone involved would reap the rewards. But for Anthony, now settling back into gangster life, he was swiftly called upon and was on his way back to Vietnam. I had gotten a call in 1974. I was still numb. I had to get a colonel. I had to kill a colonel. The guy was in Thailand. I had to go to Thailand. I had to kill him. I tracked this guy. I had a scout. And I tracked this guy. It was called the Temple of the Emerald Buddha, where he used to go and pray. This guy was a colonel over there. They said, you had to, I had to take him out. So I had my scout. We went in. I seen what I had to see. I told my scout, go back. I said, if I'm not back in a week, they know I'm dead. He let them, let them know. And I'm watching this guy, and I got a, uh, 
I got the I got the uh, two seventy weather B. When I took the hollow points, big fucking, I took like two hundred fifty grain shell. That I mean, it's, there's nothing gonna stop this bullet. So I have them in the rifle. I got the scope, and I'm watching every day. The guy would come out, surrounded by four or five guys. He walk into the temple of the Emerald Buddha, pray. He comes out. First day, second day, third day. I had to stay, no matter if it took me 30 days, I had to stay there and kill this guy, no matter what. Even if they thought I was dead, I had to kill this guy. The morning of the fifth day, this guy comes out by himself. I says, oh, I'm fucking dead. I says, all of a sudden, four days in a row, this guy's coming out with five, six bodyguards around him, going into the temple. Now this morning, he comes out by himself. Now I'm listening, I'm trying to hear, can I hear anything? I mean listening. I don't hear no walking. I mean, the birds and everything, you still hear them saying, some everybody goes, if somebody's walking around, the birds and the animals, you don't hear them. They just go silent, you know? And I'm looking at her, I says, something's wrong. Something's really fucking wrong. Now I'm starting to get a little fucking edgy. This guy turns around. He turns around with his back to me. All right? Gets down on his knees and starts praying where they put their hands out and they bend down like this. And he's praying, I'm looking at him and saying, something ain't right with this fucking picture. He's supposed to be in there praying. Now I'm watching, he's praying, he's doing this, it's about five minutes he's doing it. He gets up, he turns around and gets in the same position. And I'll swear to you, like I'm here right the fuck now, that motherfucker seen me. I was over 800 yards away. And when I looked at him, it looked like he was looking right into my fucking scope like this. I could see his fucking eyes. And he started praying, doing the same thing, going down like that. I said, this motherfucker knows I'm here. I took the hollow points out and I put a full metal jacket in. Because I'm gonna give him a decent, it sounds stupid, but I'm gonna give him a decent funeral. Let's put it down. Instead of blowing his head apart with a full metal jacket, I'll make one clean hole in and a little bit of, you know, not too big of a hole coming out and he'll be dead. I put in the full metal jacket. He went down again like he was praying, then he just went down and I'm watching him. And I waited about a minute, and he stood in that position. He didn't fucking budge. He was waiting for me to pull the trigger. I got to tell you one thing. Say what you want. This motherfucker faced it like a man. He knew he was going to die sooner or later. After about a minute, I says, that's it. I just let the round go. Another kill. But this time, some genuine remorse. Years had passed now. There'd been a staggering amount of bloodshed. Protests and outrage were aplenty. But finally, and thankfully, the war was coming to an end. Well, we've been hearing stories that we were going to be leaving soon, that the war was going to be over. I mean, we heard this for about maybe six months. The war is going to be over. The war is going to be over. We were going to start pulling out. And I was in Saigon. I went to Saigon. I had done work in Saigon before. I'd done a lot of work in Saigon, street fighting with the houses. And we went back. And they told me, they says, uh, the war will be officially over in 24 hours. We're pulling out. What do you mean we're pulling out? How's it official? We won? No, we're pulling out. We'll give them, they're going to get their country back. I turned and said, I says, what? We're going to get back to the country. I said, oh, you out of your fuck. We fucking fought over here. I got friends that died here. We all have friends that died. We got to get them back to these motherfuckers. They said, you. I said, let me tell you something. Up to me. I'll blow this whole fucking country up. I'll have a glowing in the dark red at night. And the next day, I'll call it Anthony's parking lot. Next thing I know, 
bing, back to the States to the psycho ward in uh, Washington, D.C. They shipped me, they didn't waste no fucking time with me. They shipped me out right away. They said, uh-uh. They said, this guy, they thought I was unstable. I was just mad. The war came to an end. Many had died, but Anthony was lucky enough to survive. A deeply disturbing aspect of the Vietnam War was the sheer amount of people who suffered mental health disorders post the conflict. Anthony was no exception, as he spent time in a psych ward upon his return to the USA. Deemed unstable, Anthony would be here for the foreseeable future. So I went in, I seen the psychiatrist, and it comes the first time I meet him, and he tells me, uh, did you see my horse out there? What's your horse? I said, I just parked my motorcycle next to your horse. Guy's fucking right. And we have the session that's going on. Go back for another session, and he says, uh, you see my family, whatever he said, the guy's name was Jimmy or whoever's sitting back there. I turn around, I look, ain't nobody there. I said, oh, my friend Tommy's over there too. Hey, Tommy, meet Jimmy, Jimmy, meet Tommy. This fucking guy's right. I said, this guy, I said, he wants to fuck with me, I'm going to fuck with him. It's okay. A couple of days later, I go back for another session. We're talking. How do you feel about this with that? Did you ever feel like you want to kill somebody? I feel like, Tom, yeah, I want to kill you, you cocksucker. Who the fuck you think you're playing with over here? So he crosses his leg. And when he crossed his leg on his ankle, he had his watch. Where I think it would be on my wrist, but it was like this on the ankle, facing up. So I look at it, and he sees me looking at it. And he says, you think it's odd that I wear my watch on my ankle? It's not at all. I said, I wear my rings on my toes, and I wear my watch there. This way, when I go out, if I get mugged, at least I don't get my rings. And this fucking guy's right. I mean, he was right for about a good 10 minutes before he expanded the questions. This has been going on for like about a month. Now I get a call. Who comes up there? Mr. C. And Captain Bass was no more a captain. He was a full bird colonel. All right. He comes in. Now Hans L. Forcine, who was a master sergeant, now he's a major. So everybody got promoted over there. They come in to see me and say, what's going on? I said, we want to get you to fight. Get the fuck out of here. He what's going on? I told him, get the fuck out of here. Just because you blew up over there. He goes, because he wasn't. See, Mr. C wasn't there when I said that. Because if you would have been there, I would have never went here. He goes, don't worry about it. You're going home. He says, come on, get your shit. Let's go see the psychiatrist. So I tell the psychiatrist, you know, we're leaving. I said, Anthony's leaving. He says, no, he can't leave. I said, why not? He goes, you're not fit, you know. I said, listen, I'm leaving. No, but this is what he said. I said, listen, let me explain something to you. First of all, you didn't have no motherfucking horse outside the door, and I didn't have no fucking motorcycle. That's number one. You didn't have an imaginary friend in the fucking back, and neither did I. And the reason why you wear that stupid-looking fucking watch on your ankle, in psychiatry school, they teach you, if you've got a patient and you don't know if they're not too stable, you can't be looking at your watch like this because they might go off and fucking try to break your head. So you wear it on your ankle. You cross your ankle, all you do is glance down as you talk to them and you can see what time it is. So the guy looks at me, he didn't say nothing. I said, I'm leaving. No, you can't. Who's going to stop me? I'll have you stopped. So Mr. C says, he says to me, anybody tries to stop you, do whatever you got to do. Said, no problem. There's a couple of things I had in the room that I wanted, you know, personal things of mine. I went and I got him. I walked back in and there he is. He's shredding the whole fucking file. The guy's shredding the whole file. Said, Come on, get the fuck out of here. So I left. And Mr. C, we were talking. Let's go. This is 1975 now. Just go back home, do what you want. He said, but I'm going to tell you something. He goes, right now you still belong with me. Because you're under my jurisdiction. I said, but I'm, you know, I'm done with that. He goes, yeah, but you signed up. And I said, okay. 
He goes, do whatever you want. Goes, I don't care what you do. I don't care. You go back to your gangsters. He says, go back to your credit. He goes, I don't care. But when I call you, you come. That's fair enough. I said, I have no problem with that. And I went back home. Back to Brooklyn. And his time in the army was officially over. No doubt there's some of you listening, thinking about his actions, saying that they were too cruel, too nasty, maybe even evil. But if you're at war, on the front line, you have to apply the old adage. It's kill or be killed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Next time on The Enforcer. My father's about maybe, I don't know, seven, eight feet behind him. He's walking. You know, he's following them because he was going where they were going. Two guys come running up behind my father. They push my father to the ground. One guy pulls out a gun. My father seen it. He took the gun out. He killed both guys. The Enforcer is a Podular Media production in conjunction with 360DMG and recorded at Carpe VM Studios, New York. All music copyright is owned by Epidemic Sound. Narration, storyboarding, and audio production by Rob Crawford. Scripting and storyboarding by Adrian Horton. Interviewing and research by Robert Huxley. On-site recordings from Charles de Beneditis, Rod Marcus, Rod Nunez, and Jeff Rowell. The Enforcer is based on When the Bullet Hits the Bone, the amazing and possibly true life story of the last Mafia Enforcer. All accounts and claims are that of Anthony Raimondi.